I'm reading words that you might expect to hear at the funeral for a Christian, and yet I hope you understand how directly they apply to our thoughts and celebration today. At the beginning of the 21st chapter of Revelation, John describes one of the many visions that Christ gave to him, and he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sits enthroned in the heavens said, Behold, I make all things new. If you were here when this church was established, I'd like to think with you for just a moment about exactly when this church really began. Was it the moment that someone in another church in the city noticed that there was no church at all in the Kersley area and thought that something should be done about it? Or was it at a moment a formal motion was taken to the board of that church that they invest the time of some of their members and some of their treasure in establishing a church here in our community? Or was it that first Sunday, two weeks before Pearl Harbor, when Sunday school classes were first held in the old Kersley School? Or was it that last Sunday of 1944 in January when this church was officially recognized and organized as a particular church. I'm sure that you would agree with me that those questions are all pretty much academic, but they have some interest to us who are interested in the history and the structure of the church. But a larger and a more important question is just when did the church of Jesus Christ begin? Or to put it another way, when did the nation of Israel become that church? Was it in the conception or the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of the church who came to be the King of Israel? Was it the day that he died, paying the penalty our sins require and opening the gates of heaven? Was it on that occasion after his resurrection when he met his disciples in Galilee and ordered them out into the world far beyond the borders of Israel to preach the gospel? Or was it on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in all of his fullness, empowering the church to keep that great commission? Or was it on that Sunday morning when his tomb was found empty? And the central tenet of the church's faith that Jesus Christ is God was miraculously confirmed. Again, these questions and their answers are more academic than practical, but they are of pressing interest to those of us who love the church 
and want to know all that we can know, not only about its faith, but its origins as well. Easter is tied directly to the existence of the church. When I was a young Christian, I became aware of something someone thought was a joke. It began with someone announcing, did you hear that Easter has been canceled this year? And startled people would say, no, why? And the answer was, they found the body. Chuckle, chuckle. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then not only would Easter be pointless, but the faith that bears the name of Jesus Christ and the church that celebrates and teaches that faith would also cease to have any relevance. We come together, I presume every one of us, as people who have felt strangely and mysteriously drawn to Jesus Christ. And as such a people, we have an intense interest in the faith of that church, and we love that church. In that regard, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Old Testament record of the flood, an event that seems far removed from the New Testament accounts of the season through which we are passing that culminates on this glorious day. But when we give the matter sober thought, we recognize that there are strong ties between the flood and Noah and ark on the other on the one hand and Jesus Christ and the church on the other those ties become all the more plain when we remember that the church was very much on the mind of Christ while he lived among us as he gathered and taught his disciples who were to become its leaders and as he anticipated his death which would become its foundation the church is of great importance to every true Christian. We learn much about the church from the teachings of Christ, from the writings of those men who had been trained by him, by much of the Old Testament in general, and particularly from those chapters in Genesis where we read of the flood in Noah's day. This is true because the ark stands for or represents the church. On this Easter Sunday, I'd like to consider with you a few of the lessons that we might learn about the church by looking at the flood and looking at the ark. As I mentioned last Sunday, we learned something about the, from the ark about the purpose or the mission of the church in the world. From our longer discussion then, let me remind you that the ark was not commissioned to save the world. The ark was built to save the people in the ark from the judgment that was about to fall on the people of the world. In the three to four decades the ark was a building, news must have spread far and wide about what people in the world probably called Noah's folly. Men traveled miles out of their way to watch the work underway, to see this oddity for themselves, and perhaps even to scoff at those engaged in the labor. Those hired to help and worked every day with Noah and his sons heard the stories about the voice of God, about the warning that God issued. And they told their family and they told their friends that the result that many in the ancient world knew about what Noah thought was going to happen. And yet when the last of the work was done, 
When the last plank had been pinned into place, when the last seam was smeared with hot pitch, when the last bale of hay and bundle of wheat were stowed, and the final animal and the last man climbed aboard, we were reminded last week that even then God waited seven days. And the whosoever that we celebrate with respect to the uh, gospel was true of the mercy of God in that time as well. God, whose justice was about to be stamped on the record of human history, whose wrath was about to be poured out on those who refused to honor him, waited with incredible patience, with mercy in his hand, for any who would come. There's a serious question that serious Christians need to ask about the ark and its mission in the world. When the door was closed, when the windows of heaven were opened, when the water rose five cubits deep, ten cubits, fifteen cubits deep, and at last the ark floated free, had the ark failed in its mission? Most Christians would be surprised that anyone would ask such a question. Of course it didn't fail, we would all say. It saved every person that God intended to be saved. No more and no fewer. And yet there are many Christians who would be surprised that that question is being asked about the ark, who look around them in the world and recognize that most people in our culture and in the world today are not saved. They bemoan the number of the lost and blame the church for failing in its mission. You who love the church, you who give serious thought to its faith and its life and its mission, I urge you to consider what you might have to learn from a comparison from the ark in Noah's time and the church in our time and its mission and our mission in the world. In response to the leading of God, we send missionaries out into the world. And we encourage those with the gift of evangelism to be faithful to their calling. But as we support these ministries, we also need to think about what constitutes a reasonable expectation regarding the success of their labors. In other words, what percentage of the world's population, what fraction of the people living around us in the community can we fairly expect to be converted and to become Christians. Church leaders are both foolish and irresponsible if that expectation is shaped by anything other than the Word of God. And on the pages of the Word of God, we find a number of helpful, insightful passages. For example, in the 18th chapter of Genesis, we find Abraham, who has just been told God's intention to destroy the city of Sodom, bargaining with God in an attempt to save the city. Abraham said to God, suppose there are 50 righteous people in the city. Would you not spare it for them? And God said, if I find 50 righteous persons in the city, I will spare all for their sake. Then Abraham lowered the number from 50 to 45, from 45 
to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally 10. But in a city whose population surely numbered in the hundreds, perhaps in the thousands, 10 believers could not be found, and the fire fell from heaven. In the days of Ahab and Jezebel, we read of the despondent loneliness of Elijah, who saw himself as the only true believer in all of Israel. And in this time of his despondency, God came to him, and he said, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal. The population of that time would have numbered in the hundreds of thousands at the least, yet in that great nation there were only 7,001 true believers. We remember reading that only two of the 12 tribes sent by Moses into the land were of true faith and wisdom. We recall the reduction of Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 before they were ready to do battle for the Lord. In a later time, the prophet Isaiah wrote of Israel, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And 800 years later, the Apostle Paul would be caused by the Holy Spirit to write that not all Israel is Israel. And you remember in the seventh chapter of Matthew, the one that we have learned to call Lord said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. And because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And Paul tells us that after his resurrection, in a nation numbering perhaps in the millions, the largest crowd Jesus gathered on any one occasion was a mere 500. And finally, in the seventh chapter of Revelation, we see that great crowd of the redeemed clothed in the white robes of their new condition and approaching the throne of God. There we are told that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and a great multitude which no one could number of Gentiles but in their aggregate representing but a small fraction of all of the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And most of the point for our purposes today, when the ark began to rise, there were only eight people on board. This would be a very small percentage of people living at the time. And we agreed earlier that the ark perfectly fulfilled its mission. As the Lord gives us opportunity to reach out to the community and the world around us, we must be obedient and must do that. But let's be sure that the standards by which we measure the success of those efforts are shaped by the scriptures and only by the scriptures. In its teaching and in its worship, the church celebrates several milestones in the life of Jesus as the Son of Man. 
The first of these, of course, is his incarnation in the womb of a Jewish virgin whose name was Mary. And another is his birth in the Judean village of Bethlehem. We remember his temptations and pray for ourselves that we might learn its lessons. We reflect on his call to men to follow him and ponder our own call. We set aside a Sunday to recall his entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the final week of his life. And on that Thursday and on that Friday, we gather to remember the Lord's death. And of course, the greatest of all Sundays, when the three days and the three nights he prophesied reached their appointed end and his grave was emptied. Beyond that, we set aside time to celebrate his ascension and to recall the coming of the Holy Spirit empowering the church to do and to be what Jesus had created it to do and to be. But there remains one day, one day yet in the future, that the entire church of Jesus Christ will greet and celebrate as none other. And that is the day of his personal return to earth and the final gathering of the saints. Some Christians in churches spend more time talking about this than we. Some Christians in churches have a different perspective of things they expect to precede and accompany the Lord's return than we do. Many of these folks take literally the biblical references to a millennium of special significance. The most common among these are premillennialists who believe that Christ's return will come before the beginning of that millennium. And most, if not all, premillennialists also believe in something they call the Great Tribulation. In their view, the scriptures teach that just before the return of Christ, there will be a time of unprecedented suffering and torment on the earth, which will be called, caused by the outpouring of the wrath of God. And among such good Christian people, the burning question is, will the church pass through any part of the Great Tribulation? In this regard, and especially if you tend to be premillennial in your views of things that we are to expect in the future, there are two pieces of sacred history that you need to take into account as you struggle toward an answer to this question about the church and the tribulation. The first of these is the account of the flood. It was also a time when the wrath of God came upon the children of men, a time of unprecedented anguish and suffering upon the earth. But where was the church when the rain began to fall? The windows of judgment were opened and Noah didn't even get wet. The second of these records has to do with Lot, a man at the other end of the spectrum of righteousness and useful to God, usefulness to God to Noah. He was Abraham's nephew in charge at one time. In Genesis, we read of him that on more than one occasion, he fell into bad company and had to be rescued. He was living in Sodom at the time that God announced his intention to destroy the place, and that might account for Abraham's bargaining with God to try to save the city. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that God sent two angels to lead Lot to safety before his sentence was carried out. When the fire fell from heaven, 
Lot wasn't even singed. And the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I were a premillennialist, which I most certainly am not, I would take great comfort in these earlier examples of the intention and the ability of God to protect his covenant people from the judgments that he poured out upon the world. And if there is to be such a thing as a great tribulation, the Bible seems to suggest that the character of God and previous acts of God require us to understand that before the judgment of the tribulation comes, God will lift his covenant people from the earth, as he did Noah and Lot. From the scripture record of the flood, we learn something about the primacy the church and individual believers ought to attach to the worship of God. We notice that the first thing that Noah and his family did after the flood was not to take a sightseeing tour of this new world in which they found themselves. It was not to go out with sacks to pick up souvenirs. It was rather to build an altar and to worship God. In Genesis 4, the first recorded act in fallen human history was worship as the sons of Adam came to the fall family altar with their gifts. In Genesis 12, we read that Abram, led by the Spirit, crossed an invisible boundary and heard the voice of God, promising him descendants that one day would inherit the land upon which he stood. And there he built an altar, and he worshiped God. In Exodus 15, the Hebrews, who had just crossed the Red Sea, and by the Red Sea had been saved from their enemies, lifted their voices in songs of praise to God. The worship of God occupies more of the Old Testament law than any other theme, and in fact, more than all other themes combined. Again and again, we read that the nation as a whole and individuals within the nation were blessed by God when their worship was faithful and true. We come to the life of Jesus Christ, and we learn that it was his custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath and join its people in their worship of God. And the book of Revelation gives the clear impression that believers will spend eternity proclaiming the worth and singing the praises of God. In our time, there are many people who say that they believe in God, but they say in a way that gives the impression that they would add, if they were given the opportunity, what more does God demand of me? than that I believe in his existence. The Bible says that God expects those who truly believe in him to worship him. In our time, there are many people who call themselves Christians, and in fact, they even claim to love the Lord, and yet they have nothing to do with the church. The Bible says that Jesus loves the church. How can anybody not love Jesus and love what Jesus loves? The call of the scriptures issued to all people and found in Psalm 100 is this, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands, serve the Lord with gladness, come unto his presence with singing. 
the first thing that the church did after the flood was to build an altar and to worship God. And finally, there's a hymn that we sometimes sing on Easter. Its first line is this, Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious, every knee to him shall bow. I urge you to try to imagine what Noah saw after the flood. The wrath of God was spent, and the only sin remaining was that within those who survived the flood. For the first time, the sun was shining brightly on the earth, and the still, damp earth glistened in its light. As Noah opened the door and looked out for the first time, the sky overhead was a deep, clear blue. A gentle breeze touched his face. All around him seemed fresh and clean. And the words of John, had he known them, probably would have found their way to his lips. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. We know that that vision and that thought were fleeting, for almost at once the darkness of the human heart would make its presence felt. But for the moment, to this great and useful man of God, all things seemed new and fresh and good. There are other marvelous visions recorded in Scripture. There's dream, there's Jacob's dream of a ladder extending down from heaven to earth on which the angels of God were rising and descending. And Moses' view of the promised land from the heights of Mount Nebo. There's the vision of the three apostles who were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah, or Isaiah's glimpse of God in the temple. There's Paul's being born upward to what he called the third heaven and Stephen's vision of Christ standing at the right hand of God. But all of these visions pale when compared to what you and I and all who truly believe in Jesus Christ will see one bright and glorious day. With John, we'll see the dazzling appearance of God the Father forever enthroned in the heavens and near his side at his right hand, a lamb looking as if he had been slain. As we approach with the redeemed of all of the ages, clad in those white robes of redemption, carrying palm branches in our hands, we'll see the angels in all of their ascending ranks surrounding the throne and soon the heavens are filled with the voices of men and angels alike offering eternal worship to the Father and to the Son. May that be our triumphant joy on this Easter Sunday. Let us pray. Our Father, we stand before the emptied tomb of your Son, Jesus. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to think. Any doubts that we had are washed away by this miracle of all miracles. Any uncertainty that we had about who your son really is disappears in certainty and faith. But more than that, here, our God, we fall to our knees and we lift our voices. 
Because here we are convinced that all of the glorious things that you have said to us are eternally and certainly true. We thank you, our Father, for this day and for its prompt to our hearts to sing your praises. We pray that our lives tomorrow will similarly be filled with praise. As we remember the words of the angels, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said he would. To you we offer our praise and our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.